Last week, we started our new sermon series called This Is Us, and I want to remind you that there are so many ways to plug into our sermon series. Every Sunday, Reverend Mary Jane Pierce Norton takes uh, the sermon and turns it into a discussion guide for the following week. That's something that you can do as an individual or something you can do in a group, and we are always forming new home groups for you to gather virtually or in person to be able to dive deeper together. Then on Thursdays at 9 a.m., we have Lectio Divina with the upcoming Sunday Sermon uh, Scripture, and you can join us on Facebook Live for a short 15-minute um, Bible study. Then on Thursday night, Judy Woldridge leads a study on the text. It's about 30 minutes to an hour, and it's a great way to prepare for what is coming up. In this new sermon series, we have been looking at the most important relationships in our lives. We have been defining what does it mean to love God, to love our neighbors, and to love ourselves. We began last week with healthy self-love, as that forms the basis for all of our relationships. We acknowledge that in the Bible, love is mostly defined as faithfulness, as covenant, as loyalty. And so, to love ourselves, we are to be in covenant with ourselves, sticking with ourselves through all seasons. Today, we are adding to our definition of love, and we are talking about the covenant of marriage. It was a hot July day in 2012. My boss at the time thought that he was being sneaky, but when he asked me to go on a hike with him three weeks before that date, I knew that something was up. I remember opening my dresser drawer that morning as I was getting ready, looking down at my clothes and thinking, well, which mountaintop polo do I want to be wearing if I get engaged today? When we arrived at the hike to Stone Door, this amazing, beautiful one-mile hike out, one mile back, uh, it's an overlook. I thought I saw my boyfriend's car hiding in the bushes. <laughs> now, I didn't want to ruin the surprise, so I didn't walk over there to look, and I didn't want to let on to my boss that he might have, you know, told me the plan without meaning to. So the whole way out there, hiking the stone door, I kept asking myself, is my boyfriend out there or not? When we finally made it out there, there Mark stood. My sister Mary was also there, also not hiding very well behind some trees, and he had invited her to come and take pictures and to celebrate with us. Mark took me by the hand, he led me out to this beautiful bluff that overlooks lush, a lush valley of trees. On the path that lined the way out there, he hung these pictures from the years of our dating. When we went out to the rock, there was a blanket that was laid out that my sister had made for us. There was a beautiful stand with the ring box on top of it. There were flowers everywhere and a CD of love songs playing in the background. He opened up a journal, and he read to me how he felt about me and why he wanted to marry me, and then he proposed. I thought, you know, I should tell him why I want to marry him, too. So we exchanged more words and tears and hugs. That was eight and a half years ago. It was sweet, and it was serious. 
I start there today because that is exactly what we find in this small book of Scripture. Song of Songs is love poetry. Two lovers exchange these mushy romantic feelings about one another against a backdrop of a garden where images of animals and hillsides and flowers abound. Take, for instance, just the first chapter of this book. The man says things like, how beautiful you are, my darling. Your eyes are like doves. You are a lily among thorns. And the woman says, how handsome you are. Oh, how charming. You are like an apple tree among the forest, and I want to sit in your shade. It's mushy. But then here, in verses 6 through 7, the intensity and the seriousness of love is seen. This woman's uh, hymn passage is known as a love hymn. And she says, place me like a seal over your heart. Love is as strong as death. It is like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench it. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. When I officiate weddings, this is what I tell couples. A marriage needs both romance and steadfast intensity. Here and elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for love expands our definition because in marriage it represents three kinds of love. Self-giving love, sexual love, and friendship. Last week we spoke of the trinity of love that Jesus lays out for us. It is not just about love of God and others. It is about love of God, others, and ourselves. This week, our trinity of love consists of these three things. And what we know is that a marriage cannot be built purely on only one of them. A marriage or a relationship driven solely by desire is dangerous. It lacks substance. It doesn't really withstand hardship. It often leads to jealousy, which here is supposed to be a warning for us. Jealousy is as unyielding as the grave. We need attraction, but attraction alone cannot sustain a marriage. We need friendship, which forms an excellent basis for a relationship, but we also need desire and We need not give away too much of ourselves, but we must submit to a give and take within marriage. We must let go of our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness, because everything cannot be about making one person happy in a marriage. In other words, all three must be in communion with each other. Only when they are interconnected can wholeness and harmony exist in a marriage. This month, like many of you, I've been learning more about marriage in a class taught by Chris O'Rear. He is one of our pastoral therapists here at the church. He started first with the individual, affirming much of what we said last week. Individuals have to self-differentiate. We all have to strike a balance between self-need and self-giving in our relationships. He said the problem often comes when fusion happens. There is a blurring of psychological boundaries between the self and others and a contamination of emotional and intellectual functioning. 
This happens sometimes in our families of origin where instead of being able to think for ourselves, the whole family decides this is what we think together. Or it happens when our family makes it difficult for us to leave the nest and venture out into the world on our own, sometimes making us feel bad emotionally for wanting to forge our own path ahead. To function as a solid person, every individual has to learn how to think for themselves emotionally and intelligently, how to create and maintain boundaries. And of course, this is vital for a marriage. This week, I did a little internal research. I asked several members of our church to give their one piece of marital advice. Marshall and Yolanda Brown have been married for 43 years. Marshall said his one piece of advice is patience and understanding wrapped with love. Yolanda said to be really good listeners and to think before speaking. Wayne and Ann Underhill have been married for 45 years. Ann said, compromise, don't sweat the small stuff. Wayne said, give each other space for personal interests. And Betty McAllister, who was just two weeks shy of being married for 60 years, said, don't smother your spouse. Allow him or her to have their own space and interests. I love all of this advice, and I couldn't help but notice that Wayne and Betty, of all the things they could have said, both said something similar. Give each other space and room for personal interests. To be in a healthy marriage is to allow your partner to remain an individual and to continue to discover who they are, which also means we have to come to marriage with that expectation. Over my entire life, my mom's one piece of marital advice was always that two halves do not make a whole in marriage. A marriage takes one whole person and one whole person coming together. In many ways, we have been taught that marriage is about finding someone who completes you. But often, that does lead to fusion. Often, that causes us to depend on someone else to fulfill our emptiness in ways that no human being can do. We cannot come to marriage putting monster expectations on someone else to complete us to heal all the wounds with which we come. God is the only one large enough to mend our insecurities and define our worth. However, I do think that we can see marriage as finding our complement, someone else with strengths we don't have, someone who teaches us about the love of God through their gifts. And I do believe that marriage can be redemptive it doesn't save in and of itself, but we, what we experience within it is salvific. Marriage can redeem our past pain. It can offer us a love that we may at one time felt was altogether lost to us or not possible for us. I have found that true in my marriage. My husband offers me a consistent, faithful, steadfast love that I did not experience from many males in my life. 
And this, I think, is part of the ultimate power of today's verses. The love of God that is ours to experience in human relationship is described as a love as strong as death. It is a love that resurrects and redeems. It is a love that the grave cannot stop. It is a love that every death-dealing force in our lives can be combated with. We see a reflection of this love within our marriages when we face what seems impossible or irreparable and somehow new life comes from it. We experience the redemptive love of God that is as strong as death as we exchange grace and forgiveness and accountability. We experience the redemptive love of God when one of us holds up the other because we are too tired or sick or heartbroken or walking towards death. And so it becomes our task to take on what is hard together, admitting where there is brokenness or unhappiness within our relationship. Last September, I was at a conference at the Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. Many of you have heard of Adam Hamilton. He is one of the most well-known Methodist pastors in the country. Each year, his church hosts a leadership institute. And last year, Martha Brooke Martin and I from our church attended one of his breakout sessions. I was so intrigued with this survey that he did with his church, and we're talking about thousands of people, assessing the length of marriage and marital happiness. The slide showed that 60% of people who were married for less than two years were happy. Only 46% of people married from two to five years were happy. 38% for six to 10, 35% at the lowest point for 11 to 20. So it looked like a big U. Slowly the percentage decreased, and of course this included the stressors of life. Having a newborn, adding a second or third or fourth child, children growing up, having teenagers, sending kids to college. Then the graph started to go back up. 60% who had been married for 41 to 50 years were very happy. And the happiest were not even newlyweds. They were the people who had been married for 51 plus years. I find this so intriguing because so many people do not talk about the difficulties they face in marriage openly. In some ways, all people who follow this traditional path in life will share these similar experiences. And this is part of what Chris's material taught us. Marriage is the joining of families and the commitment to a new system. That doesn't sound exciting, but we cannot think of marriage only in terms of romantic feelings or planning some big wedding. There is an adjustment to a shared life. There is realignment of relationships with extended family and friends to include a partner. And once we add a child, then a second, and so on, we continue to add a new person into a system already formed, which then brings more readjustment and realignment. And so he helped us to think about five common things that happen in a marriage when you add children. I think this is helpful to us because at no, no matter what stage you're at, this can still apply. 
It can cause jealousy from one person who now receives more atten- less attention. Both parents can end up seeing the child as a burden because of their work or their own responsibilities. One parent can take on more responsibility than the other, creating resentment. Now grandparents are introduced into the system and expectations and roles have to be clear. And by far, I think the most common, marriage can become neglected because of focus on the children. I'll admit that these do ring true for us. I remember that when Lewis was a newborn, Mark and I took out our exhaustion on each other. And in 2020, we had to make a commitment to one another to go on at least one really fun date a month because we had not created time for each other. And so I think it is helpful for us to understand these dynamics in marriage. It helps us to not feel alone in the frustrations we face, and it helps us to be aware of them and look out for them. And it reminds us that we will encounter things in marriage that we have never encountered before. There is no map or rule book for marriage. Marriage probably is best understood as a journey, a trek of lessons. Over time, we learn how to be in a lifelong partnership. And as we face new obstacles or as old pain rears its ugly head, we are challenged. Wounds that we didn't even know we have are touched as we encounter new experiences in marriage. And so over time, we have to learn and relearn how to be honest with ourselves, how to communicate with one another, how to cope differently, how to address our insecurities, how to destroy those false, distorted understandings of love that we came into marriage with, and how to refuse to drop down our escape hatches. Now let me be clear here for a moment. There are reasons for you to escape or exit a marriage. And that discernment is not up to anyone else but you and God. Here, I'm talking about escape hatches that we don't want to access in a healthy marriage. These are numbing out, compartmentalizing, avoiding conflict, yelling instead of having conversation, running the other way, not coming home from work, turning to someone else for comfort or emotional support. Our text tells us that love is better than all the wealth one could possess, all the happiness that one could try and obtain through money. Don't escape by your marriage by spending. Don't escape your marriage by working harder for more money. You cannot buy love. Love is better than any fleeting feeling or passion. Do not escape what is steadfast and loyal for some passing desire. In marriage, when we encounter the stresses of life, instead of escaping, our goal is to lean into one another. The more that we lean into discomfort and fear and pain, moving toward one another instead of away from one another, the closer we grow in intimacy, the closer we come to being fully wrapped up in the redemptive, resurrecting love of God that is stronger than the forces 
that leave you empty and confused and wondering how you got to a place of feeling so distant from one another. Today, I'm asking you to remember those vows that you spoke on your wedding day. Remember the person that you sealed on your heart. Remember the giddy excitement of dating and the way you felt when your partner proposed. Recommit yourself to a love that burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. A love that cannot be doused by the raging waters of life or a pandemic. Believe in the power of the love of God that you can feel and taste and touch in your most committed relationships. It redeems. It resurrects. It saves. Thanks be to God. Amen.